0: We're going to be studying uh, from Matthew 19 this morning, but before we go to prayer, I would like to read from 1 Corinthians 7, which we will come back to, um, and so this is sort of as a background <coughs> to what we're studying. First, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking about marriage and such, and... Uh, and this is what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And that is a euphemism for, uh, for intimacy. Nevertheless, because of sexual morality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself, But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any man has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, and if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Or do, or how, or for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, and how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would please be with us now as we come to hear the words of Jesus, study your word, seek to understand your will, and seek to understand the glorious privileges that we have in Christ Jesus. Bless and be with us now, we ask. Help us, we pray. Sort of disconnect us, we pray, from the, the culture and how it thinks, and help us to think clearly your thoughts after you. Bless and be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we're consecutively studying through the book of Matthew, we've come to Matthew 19 where Jesus deals with the issue of marriage, divorce, and singleness. Well, then as I saw that on Monday, I said, wait a minute, we have communion this week. So how's that connection and how is that tie-in? And there is actually a lot of tie-ins, and I want to explain those to you uh, now. Uh, one of them is a statement that I heard that was really, really has really impacted me a lot. Uh, Since I heard it decades ago. And that was a godly man who said this Joke about sex? He said, I would no sooner joke about the Lord's table. And that's a powerful statement because it talks about something that is sacred, something that is holy, something that we as a culture have completely degraded. And just as we wouldn't joke about the Lord's table, We shouldn't joke about the sexual relationship between husband and wife. Today we're going to talk about marriage, and we're going to talk about this relationship, but I'm not going to talk focus on the physical relationship. But I think it's interesting that the sacredness, the holiness of the intimacy between husband and wife is preserved in the scriptures. The scriptures do not speak uh, in coarse language about these things. The scriptures use euphemisms. Uh, marital intimacy, Pash, uh, uh, there's, there's a sense in which this preserves the sacredness of it. Uh, Adam knew Eve, the Bible says, and she conceived. Or rendered due affection. The Bible speaks in these ways about this, this wonderful union. Now today we're going to look at marriage and we're going to look at Jesus' teaching. And of course this is a time, this is where a political hot button issue, isn't it? Uh, same-sex marriage is very much on the forefront of everybody's mind. And to be honest with you, I'm not going to address that hot-button issue primarily or focus on it at all today. I'm not going to do that. Now, I'm not going to do that because I do not believe that that's an important issue. In fact, I am of the deepest conviction that same-sex marriage is unsound, unbiblical, against God's will. It is a, not a legitimate form of marriage, okay? Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that? I say that because I'm a follower of Jesus, all right? I say that not because I rant and rave, not because I do not like homosexuals, because in fact the homosexuals that I have had personal interaction with, and I still do, I actually delight very much in, and I enjoy that. I don't hate them in any way. But I say this because I'm a follower of Jesus, and what we're going to do today is hear Jesus' words, and you will understand that. But then people say, yeah, but you're a Bible-believing Christian. You Bible-believing Christians. Or as somebody I heard say t- uh, this recently, uh, this is not a theocracy. We should not be running our country by the Bible. And I'm going to be saying the Bible teaches this, the Bible teaches that. And then you say, yeah, well, why do you do that? Because you're some kind of ignorant, uh, backwoods evangelical? No, I say that because I'm a follower of Jesus. And what you're going to see in this text today is that Jesus makes the issue of marriage an issue that then means Bible study. What does the Bible say? You're going to see the very Son of God addressing an issue by going back to the Bible. Now, I recognize that in an audience like this, not everybody is married. I recognize that. And we're going to address that because Jesus actually talks about singleness in this text as well. And we're going to address that. But even though you may not be married, perhaps you're too young to be married, perhaps you're a widower, perhaps you're a widow, perhaps you're, you're, um, you would like to be married, but you're not married, uh, either way, all of us should have a great, great concern about the institution of marriage. Marriage and the family is an absolute essential pillar to any sane society. Marriage as a pillar of society and and family is more important than government, more important than education. It's second only to the church as an absolutely essential part of society. For instance, marriage is the great solution to poverty. Married people, it's, it's single digits how when two people are married join their incomes, it's single digits how many of them lapse into actual poverty. Marriage is, a, is the poverty solution. Marriage is the solution, Paul says in First Corinthians 7, against sexual immorality. We are a society awash in sexual immorality. Marriage is the solution to that. Marriage is the, is the, is the solution to good governance and civic sanity. When parents, fathers and mothers are raising their children and equipping their children to know right from wrong, equipping their children to have a sense of justice and against injustice, equipping their children to work hard and to have a good work ethic, equipping their children to be good, upstanding citizens and good neighbors and to love their neighbors and to care for the needy and to care for the disenfranchised. When parents train their children and you unleash millions upon millions upon millions of young people who, who know how to work, who know how to live, who know how to, you can trust, who are, who are honest, that's the most wonderful thing that you can do for a society. And of course, marriage is how we propagate the race. And so it's so strange in our national dialogue that we talk about what government can do, what programs we can do, the next new thing, let's throw some money at this. And we talk so very little about marriage. I think we all should be very committed to marriage and what the Bible speaks of marriage. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching on marriage slash divorce, and then Jesus' teaching on singleness. By the way, the person who's going to be teaching us about marriage is single. I just want you to know that, we're going to get to this. Jesus was a single man. John the Baptist was single. Paul the Apostle was single. Barnabas was single. Was Timothy, perhaps? Titus, perhaps? Some of the important women of the the New Testament, perhaps? And I think, again, we need to recapture once again just the sense that singleness is not some kind of second-class citizenship. It's not. So let's look at Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce first. In Matthew chapter 19, we'll go down through, I'll stop, pause, and then we'll continue down through. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea between the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, there was a major divide in Jesus' day in Judaism about the issue of divorce. Kind of a major divide. There was a school of thought under the rabbi Hillel that taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. She didn't make you happy that morning. Go sign out a thing of divorce. She burned the toast. You could divorce her. She, 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 she had bad breath in the morning. You could divorce her. That was Hillel. Hillel, you could divorce for any reason whatsoever. Shammai was the other side. Rabbi Shammai was the other side. Rabbi Shammai was a little less liberal. You could divorce. There were means, but it was a little less liberal. Okay. There was still somewhat something of freedom to divorce as we're going to see compared to Jesus. But also, some might be thinking that what they're trying to do is to draw Jesus into the same controversy that John the Baptist got into when Herod married Herodias, his sister-in-law, and how John the Baptist spoke against that and was executed. They're thinking of maybe drawing Jesus into that as well. Perhaps that's going on in the text as well. So that's the issue. Look at Jesus' first reply, verse 4. And he answered and said to them, have you not read? Stop. Have you not read? Jesus begins to answer this very important issue by simply saying this. What does the Bible say? This is why we are Bible following, Bible believing Christians, because not because we're making an idol of our Bibles, But because we follow Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And when faced with this question, he said, Have you not read? Jesus refers to the scriptures and believes that the scriptures are the Word of God, the truth of God, and should guide us and direct us through these moral and these issues that we are faced with in life. You're in Matthew chapter 19. Look at Matthew 22, verse 29. Flip over to Matthew 22, verse 29. In the question of, is there a resurrection from the dead? Jesus says this, And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. These, Jesus points them to the Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. It's actually Jesus' arrest. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 54 Peter pulls out a sword and wants to attack. And Jesus put that back. And he says, I, got 12, I could call in 12 legions of angels. And then he says this in 54. How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Look at verse 56. By all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus had a very, very high and exalted view of the Bible. And so go back to Matthew 19 and notice how Jesus answers their question about divorce. Verse 4. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Here he's quoting... Direct quoting from Genesis chapter 1. Jesus believes Genesis is the word of God. Jesus believes that Genesis 1 is the word of God. That begins, in the beginning God created heavens and earth. Jesus believes that's the word of God. And that that is normative, formative, and authoritative on this question of marriage. Then he says this. And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting directly by memory from Genesis chapter 2. Verse 6, and so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, notice here what Jesus' answer is as as he's opening up the Bible. Number one, God from the beginning intentionally created human beings, male and female intentionally his purposes in creating humanity in his image. They are image bearers of God, male and female. God intentionally created his, his in his creation, created human beings, male and female. That was God's intention. Now notice then what he says, number one. Number two, then Jesus says this, look at verse five, for this reason, what do you mean for what reason? For this reason, the fact that that God intentionally made human beings male and female. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a byproduct. It didn't just happen that way. God wanted there to be men and God wanted there to be women. And so, and why? For this reason, God created them male and female. For the purpose of marriage and the purpose of children. It says this, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God created them male and female for the purpose of the, father, the male leaving his father and mother, the one leaving her father and mother, and the two being joined together, being joined together. The word here that is used is literally the word for glue for glue, being stuck together and glued together. And this goes well beyond, it involves marital intimacy, but it goes well beyond that, okay? Uh, think, of, think of it like this, uh, think of a glue. Uh, this, is, this is to be adhered together to form one. This reminds me of uh, PVC pipe. If you've ever worked with PVC pipe, that's the big round plastic pipe. And you, when you go to glue something together there, you, you do a cleaner first, and that evaporates. And then you put this glue in. And from all that I can gather from this, that glue actually melts the two pieces of PVC, chemically melts them, and bonds them together so that those two pieces of PVC become one. Once you glue PVC together, you better make sure you had this thing planned right, because you are not gonna get it apart. You will have to cut that section out and start all over again, because it is literally glued. That's the word that's being used here. Hus- man and woman become glued together like this so that they can't be pulled apart. Think of a skin graft. If I needed a skin graft on my, on my skin here, and they took a, a piece of skin from my hip, which it normally do, and they grafted that on there and sewed that on there, and then eventually that skin all grew. Together as one. That's not like a sticker that was put on there that I can peel off. It actually becomes one. And that's what Jesus is saying. In this amazing thing called marriage, the two become one flesh. They are joined together by God. God now sees them not as two, he sees them as one. So look at verse six. So then we are no they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man rend asunder. Now let's pause here for a second. Let's meditate on this. And the reason I think we should pause here for a second is this. There is so much focus in our culture today on same-sex marriage. There's a lot of focus in our culture today on the legitimate struggles of single parenthood. We're we're concerned about single parents and single parenthood. and That's a legitimate concern. We live in a culture of permissive, no-holes-barred sexuality in our culture. Anybody with anybody at any time, it's their right. And I think that by doing and having all of that swirling around us, we lose a sense of the wonder and beauty and wisdom of God's ordained heterosexual bond in marriage. We lose that. Marriage, dear friends, as God has ordained it between a man and a woman, is an absolutely amazing and beautiful thing. Two people, two people who are born strangers to one another. Their families may not know each other. They could be hundreds of miles apart from each other and grow up, spend most of their formative years completely not knowing each other at all, say in their 20s, meet and fall in love and marry. And all of a sudden, that bond Becomes the closest bond imaginable in their life, closer than any blood relative. I was meditating on this. I came down, and my wife has. She's a, a biography of Jonathan Edwards was to a difficult, or Jonathan Edwards wife marriage to a difficult man. I think that could be Jan's biography too. Anyway, I came out of my study and I sat down for lunch, and I looked at her and I said, "Do you know Jan? There is no." blood, biological connection between me and you. I said, there is between you and our kids and me and our kids. There's between you and our grandkids and me and our grandkids. There's between you and your siblings and me and my siblings. We have blood bond. We have genetic bond. There is no genetic bond between me and you. And yet, you are the closest, most permanent, most important relationship in my life and that's the mystery and beauty and wonder of marriage I see it I, I, I've, I've had many children get married and to me there's such joy in that because I'm watching them and through that process and through that process and through the wedding ceremony and then after the wedding ceremony and through all that my relationship with them Jan and my relationship with them changes it changes they don't need me anymore they don't need me. They, they walk out the door. They get their stuff. They're excited. They're leaving excited, running. It's not because they don't like us, but their heart is in a different direction. And then the lady, the girls look at him, their, their husbands. The men look at their wives. And there is a bond. And all of a sudden, these people that I, I raised, I fed, Jen and I nurtured, we, 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 we took them through teething. We changed their diet. We did all of that. We saw them through school. We agonized through them through teenage years. All of that, all of a sudden, this other person comes along and is like, boom. And I see them look in their eyes, and they love them, and they delight in them. and And all of a sudden, God has just made another miracle, these two people that are connected. You see, dear friends, marital intimacy is a part of that in the wonder of marriage. But there's so much more than that. It's two people who love one another. It's two people who live together. It's two people who talk together. It's two people doing life together, and that, and that just keeps making that bond tighter and tighter. They face challenges together. They have joys together. They make goals together and then they achieve those goals. They take care of each other. They each have their roles and they, and they delight in that. And, and, a, and a wife delights in a strong and loving and kind and capable man. And a, and a man delights in having a strong and loving and nurturing and gentle and capable woman. They delight in that. And then in their most intimate moment, a moment that symbolizes the wonderful union and glue that is the, them together, in their most intimate moment, then God blesses and a miracle happens. A miracle happens. A life-changing miracle happens. Another human being is formed in the image of God. And he or she is a perfect blend and a delight. And all of a sudden, their heart is connected again. Dear friends, this marriage as God has created it is a beautiful thing. It's glorious. It's to be celebrated. And I believe that we need to be careful that we don't lose that by focusing on all of these other things. Notice here also that Jesus is giving us what's called a creation mandate. In other words, Jesus is going back to creation and saying, this is what it was supposed to be. This is what it's to be about. And we're going to see that in the next next section. So notice, first of all, the Pharisees' response. Look at verse 7. They actually quote the Bible, too. This is a biblical discussion verse 7 they said to him why then did moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away that's deuteronomy 24 verse 1 that's what they are referring to where it says in deuteronomy when a man takes a wife and marries her it happens that she finds no fa- if she, that she finds no fa- if it happened, i'm sorry and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her that's a key word by the way He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. And the Pharisees are saying, why then did God give a commandment that you could have a divorce? And so Jesus' next response is answering that. He says this in verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. See, Jesus is going back to creation, and he's saying that creation mandate. He's going back to what was the purpose of creation? Why did God create the way He did? Let's go back and see what the original plan was, what the original plan was in creation. Because the original plan and what something was created for, it determines how that thing is to be used. This is a pen. This is a pen. Could I plant a garden with this pen? Plow a garden and plant it? Well, it'd be a lot of work. But yeah, I probably could just start digging the ground like this and digging the ground like this and digging the ground and digging the ground and digging the ground, digging the ground hoping it doesn't break, and then get some seeds and maybe pop that in and put it. Yeah, yeah. But that's not the purpose for this. This works very good in writing things. It doesn't work good. At, this is a pulpit. Could I drive a nail with this pulpit? Eh, Yeah, if I could get it started somehow and then pick this thing up. (laughs) I could maybe drive a nail with this pulpit, but that's not the purpose for why this was designed. Look at it's doing such a great job for what it's designed for. Why were human beings created? What was the purpose of creation? Why did God create the way he did? Matt's teaching uh, the 1689 next week on creation. And dear friends, more and more we're realizing, I think, in our culture that this idea, at least Christians are, this idea of creation, going back to creation, what his purposes were, why did God do what he did, and how does that determine how things should function and how things are? Think about this. Without creation gives us an understanding of who we are. We're beings created in the image of God. It gives us dignity. Secularism has no way of defining human dignity. We do because God has created it. It gives us the meaning of marriage, why God created it, the roles of of males and females. All of that comes from creation. Even the stewardship of the earth that we were put here for a reason the, 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 the secular radical environmentalists see uh, 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 human beings as, as enemy invaders on this planet. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. We have been created, and yet there's a biblical ecology that it should come by the stewardship that we have. And all of this comes from the mandate. And what Jesus is doing here is he's telling them, listen, he's teaching them progressive revelation. What has happened in the history of redemption? God created in this, for this purpose God created a man and a woman for this purpose, for marriage, that they would be glued together and never be separated. But then with the entrance of sin, with the brokenness of sin, with the disruption of sin, then there were times when God did recognize and God ordained that a divorce would take place. God in his mercy, when the beautiful thing that is marriage that God had created, when by sin it has been marred and destroyed and damaged and deranged, God in his mercy frees a spouse from an abusive spouse, from an unfaithful spouse. It's better to break this up than for sin to continue on. God in his mercy. But Jesus is saying this, that should not be the norm. You're making that the norm. You're acting like that's the norm. Notice, look at verse 8 again. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts... It's because of sin. It's because of evil that divorce is coming. But that was not from the beginning. It was not so. Let's go back. Let's not make that the norm. And that's what's happening today. Today we're making brokenness the norm. And Jesus is saying, go back to creation. Look at the beauty of what God has done. And my kingdom is to restore. My kingdom is to bring righteousness. My kingdom is to redeem. And so let's go back. And then Jesus sets a very high standard, a super high standard for marriage. Notice what he says in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus sets a high standard. There's to be no divorce. There's to be no divorce. None. Except for marital unfaithfulness. Sexual immorality that is marital unfaithfulness. And you know what? Even today, the world intuits this. The world gets this. You watch a movie, and it could be a movie not made by Christians by any stretch of the imagination. But oftentimes this appears in movies. Husband and wives are together and they're fighting or something's going wrong or something. And all of a sudden it's revealed that the husband has text messages on his phone. Or the wife has been going to places and she's been seen. And there's another person involved. And the question comes up. Did you sleep with her? Did you sleep with him? And you see, they're intuiting the violation of the covenant that such a matter is. To take that most beautiful expression of the oneness of man and woman in a forever relationship that God has made and break that. That's why Jesus says in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. As we read in the Apostle Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that desertion is the other biblical ground for divorce. There are two biblical grounds for divorce, sexual immorality and desertion. Why? Why only those two? Because in Malachi 2.16, God says this, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not teach, do not deal treacherously. God hates divorce. So then the apostles have a panic attack. Look at their panic attack. Verse 10, the disciples say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like, whoa, you just set the standard so high. Maybe we shouldn't get married. And notice what Jesus says. And he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. As much as you realize that entering into this life commitment and this kind of thing is is, is, is so binding that you draw back from that, are you really made and By God, to live singly? Can you really be content and happy singly? Not everybody has that gift. But notice what he goes on to say. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. What does this mean? Well, first of all, the word eunuch really grates on us. We don't know, what is that? What does that mean? We think we know what that means, but boy, we don't like it. The trithematic eunuch means literally, it doesn't have the negative connotations we associate with it. The word actually means in Greek, one uh, who is alone in bed. That's what the word means, one who is alone in bed. And Jesus said there are eunuchs who are born that way, some with congenital defects. Others, there are people born, and they are such people who... The way that they are put together, they do not have very strong needs for marriage, marital intimacy, and they're completely content without that. In the olden days, those people used to be called confirmed bachelors or single women. And many of them were people who, they just didn't feel the need to be married. They, 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 They were perfectly content to be by themselves. In in our generation now, they're forced to be heterosexual or gay, forced to be heterosexual or gay, or you can be transgender, which is a whole nother category, but you're forced into one of those, and that was not true. For instance, Jesus, Paul, John the Baptist, Timothy, these were men who found, perhaps Timothy, these were men who, Barnabas for sure, who found that they were not compelled, they didn't need to be compelled to be married. Secondly, there are eunuchs who are made by men, and of course that's the savage thing that happened back in that that day and age. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 would be an example of that. But then thirdly, there are these, and here's actually where I should have been using the name Jesus, Paul and John and Barnabas. There are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. What does that mean? There are some men who believe, or women, that their call to serve God and to live for God in such a way is such and they, they, can, they can, without burning, live a life like this of contentment, that they will sacrifice the companionship of marriage, the joy and the, the care of having a spouse care for them and take care of them, the joy of having children, the joy of normal family life, they will give that up for the sake of the kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the passage speaks of that, of giving that up for the sake of the kingdom. And Paul says, I wish that you were all like me, I wish that you because if you get married, Paul says, it adds burden upon burden. the, the, the married person has to c- be concerned about their spouse and taking care of their spouse. Whereas a single person, all they have to do is, Lord, what would you have me to do? And there are there are people, there are pastors. I have met pastors. I have met missionaries, men and women who have committed themselves to a life of full 100% service toward God. And they were they weren't burning and and they weren't burning for marriage, and they weren't uh, unhappy, and they weren't lonely. There were times of loneliness and there were times of great sacrifice and there were times when they were watching their siblings and their friends have children and delighting that, but they had committed themselves to the kingdom of God and our Lord Jesus Christ did this. Our Lord Jesus Christ did this for us. And in the Bible, that's actually a superior position. A superior position. So let's apply all of this teaching to ourselves where we're at here and now, especially this diverse group of people. Number one, to the married, don't get divorced don't get divorced to the married here you see dear friends but 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 more than that this is what I want to say people don't people veer off course way before they crash and burn in divorce they veer off course way before the divorce actually takes place and so what I'm saying is the Bible tells us this marriage that we have, this sacred union, this bond, this beautiful thing between husband and wife, this thing is to be taken care of. It's to be nurtured. It's to, so, and I would urge you, nurture your marriage. If you are married today here, nurture your marriage. Feed your marriage. Grow your marriage. Attend to your marriage. Guard your marriage. Treasure your marriage. Make the effort with your marriage. Dear ones, if you have arguments, keep them short. Forgive. Make up. Don't let a root of bitterness develop. Extend forgiveness. We just saw this last week. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Talk. Talk. I feel like getting on my knees and begging. Talk. Be surprised how many times I asked a spouse about something, and they said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, why do I know more about your spouse than you do? Talk and listen. Talk and listen. Share with one another. Shut the TVs off shut the phones off, talk, open up, share, get to know each other, laugh, nurture this wonderful sacred thing called marriage that you have. Do things together. If you have children, get alone, go on date nights, get alone across the table with a lit candle and a nice meal and even a cheap meal if you don't have the money. Zoo and it, Jan and I would sit in a booth at Wendy's. Hoping that the police wouldn't call because her house burnt down because all those kids were there with that babysitter. And over the frosties, talk, enjoy once again that connection, that unique, beautiful thing that makes me look at her and her look at me, makes my sons look at my daughters-in-law, my daughters look, makes makes these dear couples here that I've married here look at each other as if the whole world uh, stops. Get that back. Pray together, and when you're alone, pray for your spouse. Pray that God will give you a deeper love for your spouse. Thank God for your spouse. To the singles who are here, assess your calling, singles. Assess your calling. Has God called you to be single? Perhaps some of you may need to be open to the fact that God has called you to be single. I'm not telling you what to do, but has God called you to be single? Perhaps you are one of these people who say, huh. Maybe all the pressure I'm getting from people to marry, I don't really need to go that route. I'm perfectly comfortable, and in fact, I could really be used of God in this way. Assess it. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're not called to be single. No, I'm single right now, but I really, really, really feel that I need to be married. Then pray for a spouse, seek a spouse. That's a good thing. Trust God that God will send you a spouse. Pray about this. Make, make, go meet people. But then, dear friends, please, let us all be open to the fact that there may be those who are called in our midst, who are called to singleness for the kingdom of God, and let's support them. Don't badger them that they're not married. Support them. I would hope Jesus or Paul wouldn't show up here and say, why aren't you married by now? Don't do that. And those of you who are single because you're widows, you're single because you're a widower, or you're single because you're young and it's not time for you to enter into marriage, use the extra time for the kingdom of God. Serve. Give. Don't say, oh, wow, I'm single now, and I'm I'm a widower, and I'm a widow, and I've got my pension, so I'm going to play for the rest of my life on earth. Well, relax, enjoy, enjoy your retirement, but also serve the Lord. Find out what you can do. Thirdly, to those here who are divorced, to those here who are divorced, now please, everybody, please be very careful about what I'm just about to say. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It is not. And divorce does not make you a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. It does not. Divorce is, 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 is not like that. First of all, there may be divorced people here. And and, and those of us who aren't divorced, don't judge people who are divorced. There may be divorced people here who are divorced because they had legitimate reasons to be divorced. They have biblical grounds to be divorced. Their spouse cheated on them. Their spouse walked out the door on them. Or their spouse, and there's a way to actually have in-house abandonment. In-house abandonment. I have seen spouses. They're too lazy to walk out the door. They're too lazy to get an apartment but they've abandoned their wives. They've abandoned their, 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 their husbands. They've emotionally walled them out. They live in a little world in their own self-making in their own selfishness and their own pornography and their own this and that. Dear friends, there's an in-house abandonment. There is. And some people who are divorced here may be divorced because of that. Don't judge them. That's, they have biblical grounds for a divorce. But maybe you're divorced because of sin in your past. Maybe you weren't a Christian. And you caused the divorce. You were the one who cheated. Maybe, maybe you, in your past, you look back and there's a divorce and you regret that. Dear ones, the Bible's teaching is this. God is gracious and merciful. God forgives. God cleanses. God gives new life. And dear ones, some of the best marriages that I've ever seen, some of them, some of the best marriages that I've ever seen were marriages of people who in their previous life, and it was such a mess, were divorced, everything was messed up, and they became Christians, and they met, and they felt like God had given them a second chance, and they have developed some very wonderful, wonderful marriages. But listen very carefully. God is not mocked. If you are sitting here today saying, oh, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I'm going to get divorced. God will forgive me. God is not mocked. God is not mocked, and he will not forgive based on that. I actually had somebody say, I'm going to commit I adultery. Want, I want out of this marriage so bad, I'm going to commit adultery, so then we'll have biblical grounds. I'm like, dude, you don't have biblical grounds. You commit that sin, you will never marry again in, in a way that God is pleased. No, no, God is not mocked. Fourthly, I'd like to say this. Do not make an idol out of marriage. None of us. I have painted a beautiful picture of marriage, I hope. I have painted a wonderful picture of closeness, companionship, oneness, intimacy. And I, I I wanted to do that for a reason because it's true. But, dear friends, let's none of us make an idol out of marriage. You know why? Because there is a greater closeness. There is a greater companionship. There is a greater oneness. And that comes between us and God. That is the greatest of all relationships. And guess what, dear friends? In heaven, we won't be married to our spouse. In heaven, we will, this relationship with God. Have you known, come to know the closeness with God where like a husband and wife, you and the bride, as the bride and Christ have a closeness and a oneness and a nearness and a delight in each other's presence and a delight to be near and a longing to be closer and a longing to be with him and a longing to, and have you found in your life that God is your all in all. You might have a great spouse like I do, and yet God is your all in all. Jan loves and her needs are met way more in God than in me. And if I die, Jan is going to continue to have this wonderful relationship with God. And when we get to heaven, I'm going to say, Jan, it's great to see you, Todd, wonderful to see you. Look at him, rejoice in him, glory in him. Dear ones, the most intimate Wonderful relationship that we can have is with God. This is how single people like Paul and Barnabas could thrive. They knew Christ. They knew God. Don't make an idol out of marriage. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. And what you're about to do is an intimate act of fellowship and worship and closeness with God. You're about to be invited to his table. Do you know God? Is God your all in all? He is available to you in Christ Jesus. If given a choice to never have known fellowship, oneness, or closeness in marriage and to know God, or to only have marriage and to not know God, I guarantee you both me and Jan would say, give me God. As wonderful as this has been, give me God. Do not Take me away from God. Dear ones, have you come to know a God like that? He's available to you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask and pray that you would bless and be with us. So many are here in so many different stages in life. But Father, we've heard Jesus speak. And we are followers of Jesus. Help us, we pray. Whatever station you have us in, help us, we pray. But we thank you that for all of us, there is a oneness here. Because for those who know you and trust in you, we have you. We have you. We thank you. We praise you that we have a relationship with you because your son died for us, because you gave him for us. Thank you. We praise you and glorify you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.